Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. From Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. On today's program, the struggle over water and treaty rights, the intergenerational cultural sustainability for 30 federally recognized Native American nations and the relationship to the Colorado River, and what this means with three states and various businesses competing for all the water. We'll get an in-depth understanding of what all this means and what the future plans are for the Colorado River as outlined in the recently released U.S. Bureau of Reclamation's Draft Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement and more. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone October of 2023, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation released its draft supplemental environmental impact statement in which they are poised to move forward with the California, Arizona, and Nevada state's plan to give up about 13% of water they receive from the Colorado River through the end of 2026. What comes next is a 45-day public comments period on the draft supplemental environmental impact statement, which is expected to be finalized in early 2024. At stake, however, are the treaty and water rights for 30 federally recognized Native American nations connected to the living Colorado River, which is also a major water supply for 40 million people, seven states, and five and a half million acres of agriculture. Today on American Indian Airways, we cover what all this means, particularly for the 30 Native American nations in general, but also we explore and discuss the complexities of treaty and water rights in relationship to the future of the living Colorado River. Our guest for the hour, Jay Weiner, has worked with numerous Native American nations and governments since interning for the California Indian Legal Services while attending law school at the University of California at Berkeley. Since then, he has developed extensive expertise in the area of federal Indian law, has worked on multiple Native American water rights settlements, and has represented clients in adjudication and other water-related proceedings in the states of California, Montana, and Oregon. Today, he joins us as the tribal water attorney for the Quetzal Indian Nation located along both sides of the Colorado River near Yuma, Arizona. He is also of counsel of Rosette, a majority-owned Native American law firm. And we begin today's interview with me asking him the significance of the newly released draft supplemental environmental impact statement and what that means for the 30 federally recognized Native American nations that are related to the living Colorado River. It's an important question. I think in a lot of ways, what the revised supplemental environmental impact statement 
means and is trying to accomplish looks very different today than it did 12 months ago when reclamation was really in the in the process of initiating that effort and the reason i say that is that where we were sitting in the colorado river basin a year ago is was in catastrophic drought really two decades of it and the hydrologic projections if we got another bad winter uh, were looking at some really really dire potential outcomes and one of the things that reclamation was looking for when it initiated this process was additional tools beyond the ones that it currently has to deal with really acute shortages, uh, particularly of water availability in Lake Mead and Lake Powell, which are the major reservoirs on the system. And everyone was taking that very, very seriously, was very concerned about these outcomes. And one of the things that has happened in the interim is that we were blessed with a historically good winter. And that has not solved the problems on the Colorado. It has not magically refilled the reservoir. It has not changed any of the concerning hydrologic trend lines that we see because of things like climate change. But what it did do is it relaxed a little bit the, the severity and the acute nature of the crisis. And so where this supplemental environmental impact statement, which really is geared toward the rules of the road for reclamation to operate the Colorado River Basin system between now and 2026, when a whole set of basin operating rules expires, is, is in some ways less important now because of the winter that we had, because of the extraordinary conservation efforts that states and tribes in the lower basin have made to try to keep more water in Lake Mead to, to give us more of a buffer against some of these really dire potential outcomes. And so between the hydrology and the conservation efforts, many of which have been funded with significant federal investments through things like the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, we now have a little bit more breathing room to get us to 2026. And in many ways, much of the action in the basin is sort of pivoting to focus on the negotiations over what the post-2026 operating framework is going to look like. And in many ways, that is really going to be a critical process. It is where we are going to find out whether a lot of the good rhetoric that we've heard in the basin over the last set of years about the need for greater tribal inclusion, about the importance of protecting tribal water rights and ensuring that the 30 tribes in the basin all have the ability to benefit from their water rights, whether there's actually going to be action behind those words or whether they will be another set of hollow and empty promises of which, as I know you know, there is a long history coming from the federal government and the states. Well, I certainly want to tap into the little uh, some of that history a little bit. But, you know, when we talk about that short reprieve, I mean, my understanding, Lake Powell is like 37% full and Lake Mead's only 34% full. And you know, the, the Reclam Bureau of Reclamation um, is reporting that the chances of these reservoirs actually dropping to critical low levels uh, to 8% at, at Lake Powell and, and 4% at Lake Mead through 2026. Those are the projections. So I guess my question is, when you're saying reprieve, are we just talking about a one-year reprieve? Um, and then what does that look like just in the larger scheme of things in terms of, 
you know, fairly recognized nations exercising their treaty rights to ensure access to water in perpetuity for cultural sustainability purposes and for intergenerational purposes? So those are both really excellent questions. In response to the first one, it's certainly a one-year reprieve. The, the, the effects of last winter coupled with the conservation commitments that lower basin states and tribes are making through the 2026 period. Uh, the reclamation projections that you mentioned suggest that we probably are in very good shape through 2025. If we have another pair of catastrophically bad winters, uh, by the time we get to 2026, yes, it's absolutely possible that we'll be looking at being much closer to some of those critical elevations again. Um, so uh, nobody is under any illusions that we've somehow fixed the problem or that the fact that we have this breathing space means that we can all relax and pat ourselves on the back. It really just allows us to focus on the longer-term issues, which is what's going to be required if we're going to be able to move the Colorado River Basin into a place of sustainability, uh, which, of course, is, is it's a critically important value for the Katsan tribe, who I represent. I know that I have heard other tribes and other tribal leaders in the basin speak of that as well. Uh, at Kitsan, I know President Joaquin consistently talks about the, the importance and the essentiality of needing to have a living river, right? I mean, we, this, is, this, is a, this is a river system that has huge human interventions. Mm. Lake Mead is the largest reservoir in the country. Powell is huge. You know, reclamation, especially in the lower basin, largely runs the system by opening spigots. The Colorado River used to flow all the way down to its delta in Mexico. It now runs dry very shortly below the Mexican border. Uh, this is a system, this is, this is an ecosystem that has been dramatically and profoundly changed and damaged by settler colonial development. Uh, and one of the things that has happened more recently are some efforts to really try to focus on ecosystem restoration. It's something that I know the Catan tribe is very invested in. Other tribes in the basin are very invested in. There is an active community of environmental and other non-governmental organizations who are putting tremendous time and thought and resources into ways to make sure that while the economies that the basin supports and that have grown up around it can continue to function. Uh, the ecosystem and the environment are no longer afterthoughts or no longer simply sacrificed at, at the altar of, of economic development. And this is one of the, the places that the basin is at something of an inflection point as to whether similar, but obviously not the same, these are different kinds of issues, but similar to the fact that tribes have been excluded from Colorado River governance for the entire century that the Colorado River Compact has been in place, and obviously well before that, you know, there is a need for greater tribal inclusion and for tribal perspectives, which, as I know you know, are not uniform. I mean, there are tribes in the basin that are, are differently situated. There are tribes in the basin that have different perspectives on how they want to be able to exercise and benefit from their water rights, on how they think the system should operate, on what sorts of priorities are supposed to come, you know, higher and lower. And that's entirely appropriate and consistent with tribal sovereignty and self-determination that each tribe needs to be able to set and advocate for its own agenda. And, but one of the places I think there are some exciting opportunities for partnerships are with some of these NGOs and others who are looking to focus on the importance of, of a healthy ecosystem because that is something that the tribes in the basin had enjoyed since time immemorial. 
tribal cultures and traditions are built around the ecosystem in the basin. Certainly this is true at Kitsan, um, where there are, are important tribal rituals that rely on native plant species and that the tribe is very invested in doing on-reservation and broader ecosystem restoration to be able to bring back some of these species, mesquites and willows and cottonwoods, for example, um, that have been crowded out through some of the ecological devastation that's occurred to try to find ways to make sure that these very important traditional cultural materials remain available and accessible to tribal members. I was wondering for our listeners, and we were talking about how complex uh, treaty rights are and, and what sovereignty looks like and, and how it's unique and specific to each indigenous nations, but certainly in the long legacy of water and Native American nations exercising their treaty rights. And when it comes to water, you know, Native American nations are the only nations that have had to prove or demonstrate primary use as a way to qualify getting access to water. And, and I know the, the issue is more complex than just that, but I was wondering maybe give our listeners a, a, a feel or a sense of how complex this issue is. And the understanding, as you already articulated that, you know, Native American nations haven't had a, a seat at the table, if you will, for, for more than a century, and how that elevates kind of the urgency of what's happening right now. Sure. And, and it, is, it, is, it is complicated, and it is also on some levels not complicated in the sense that it's, it's appalling that in 21st century America, there are still Native communities in the basin that lack access to basic potable drinking water. I mean, the fundamental human right to water is something that there are still tribal communities in this day and age that, that they struggle with. We are fortunate, you know, for at, at the Katsan tribe that that is not an, a particular issue of ours, but we are very sensitive and attuned to the fact that, that it should go without saying that access to clean potable drinking water is something that every tribal community should have. And whatever it takes to do that needs to be done. I mean, so there, there are, are just some of those core pieces there. In terms of the sort of the legal water rights piece of it, uh, this, again, is a place that, that tribes in the basin are differently situated. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Jay Weiner, who is the tribal water attorney for the Quetzal Indian Nation which is located along both sides of the Colorado River near Yuma, Arizona. We're speaking on the future of the Colorado River and what it means for Native American nations and more. And now back to the interview. There are commonalities in terms of the overarching legal framework. Uh, there's the, the, the 1908 U.S. Supreme Court decision in a case called Winters versus United States, which was a recognition that when tribes were giving up land to to you know to white American United States development, um, they intended to reserve for themselves homelands as small portions of the lands they were able to retain of what used to be their Aboriginal territory. And in this Winters case, uh, which arose off of the Fort Belknap Reservation in North Central Montana, the United States Supreme Court recognized that it would be nonsensical to interpret these treaties and these land sessions from tribes as though the tribes did not continue to intend to rely on access to water. You know, the United States' vision was that they were going to make the, the tribes yeoman farmers. Um, and you need water to do that, obviously. You need water to support tribal communities. 
And so in this Winters decision, the United States said that whenever there is an Indian reservation, and, and the courts have later expanded this to be whether that reservation was created by treaty or by Congress or by executive order, where you have an Indian reservation, there is an implied water right for that reservation for sufficient water to satisfy the purpose of the reservation. And so that's the basics of the doctrine. And so it's, it's interesting in that in the West, where state law runs on prior appropriation, which is first in time, it's first in right, but the amount, the size of your right is based on the water you, can, you actually, actually put to use. That's how the state law-based systems in their broad brush strokes work. The Winters Doctrine holds that the tribe's rights are not measured based on actual historical use. They are measured based on what the, the purpose of the reservation is. And that is what I sometimes not so affectionately refer to as a lawyer full employment question. <laughs> because you can fight over what the purpose of the reservation is. And then once you decide what the purpose of the reservation is, you get to fight over how much water is necessary to satisfy that. And so what that leads to is that even though because tribes' priority dates, and so the, this notion of the, the prior appropriation system, mm. uh, which is the, the basics of Western water law, which says, you know, first in time is first in right. So if, if you know, if your great-grandfather started using water on April 1st, 1872, and my great-great-grandfather started using water on April 2nd, 1872, mm -hmm. under a prior appropriation system, and assuming you know, for, that nothing in particular has changed about the water use, you would be entitled, standing in your great-great-grandfather's shoes with his water right, to the last drop of water you need before I get the first drop of water that I need. That's the, that's the first in time, first in right, prior appropriation. What you have, though, with these tribal rights, you have generally very senior priority dates because the dates are generally the dates that the reservations were created, which was obviously fairly early in the white settlement of the West. And so you have tribes with very senior claims to water, but you do not have a specific quantification for how much water. And that's what ends up you need to fight over. And the two ways you can answer that question are either through litigation, through court adjudications of water rights, or through negotiations and water rights settlements. And so in the Colorado River Basin, there are tribes who have litigated their water rights and have court decrees. There are tribes who have settled their water rights and have recognized water rights through those settlements that often include some other terms and conditions, often that those settlements can bring federal funding for important infrastructure development, but sometimes also put some sideboards on how tribes can use and develop their water on and especially off their reservation. And so that's a piece of what goes into the complexity of the Colorado River Basin, where even though the, the overarching legal framework is the same, each tribe's individual history, from the way their reservation was created and the purpose of those reservations to whether or not you know, their water rights have been decreed or settled, what those terms are, leave each of the tribes essentially, even though there are definitely commonalities, um, in each and individually unique positions when it comes to trying to figure out how best to protect and preserve access to water if in perpetuity. Um, and that influences perspectives that different tribes have 
on how the the basin should be operated. And I assume part of that conversation, too, or those dynamics, is uh, the legacy of the U.S. Supreme Court and its adjudication of other cases. So I'm thinking, for example, you know, Arizona versus California in 1963 or the, the Capart versus U.S. Uh, 1976 U.S. Supreme Court decision amongst others. And so I was wondering maybe kind of, you know, speak to some of these key watershed cases that are also major contributory factors to what you just articulated. Absolutely. No, and Arizona versus California is a, is a very important case. It, it, it specifically arose in the Colorado River Basin, uh, in part actually of an interstate fight between Arizona and California, hence the name of the case. But for Indian water rights, uh, Arizona versus California was really the first time that the U.S. Supreme Court had been called on since 1908 to talk about what Indian reserved water rights were, how you quantify them, and what tribes you're entitled to. Uh, the United States in Arizona versus California filed claims on behalf of five tribes with reservation lands on the main stem of the Colorado River uh, in, in Nevada, Arizona, and California. One of the things you mentioned, you mentioned at one point, the, the recent Navajo Nation decision from last June. Right. Um, one of the reasons that Navajo had to pursue that case, and one of the reasons that the, the holding in that case, ultimately, the, the opinion of the five justice majority on the Supreme Court that wrote it, um, is, you know, it kind of sends Navajo back to the drawing board, is that the United States chose not to file claims on Navajo's behalf in Arizona versus California. Um, and so there is, you know, there's an inflection point there that for the five tribes whose rights were decreed in Arizona versus California, and that includes the Kitsan tribe who I work for, that has meant that the tribes have had their water rights determined since the mid-1960s. Uh, and that provides for a degree of certainty and predictability and stability that there are other tribes in the basin that are still struggling for, including the Navajo Nation for their water rights in Arizona, um, in part going back to the fact that they weren't included in, in Arizona versus California originally because of the United States' decision to, to keep them. And the Capart versus uh, United States U.S. Supreme Court decision uh, adjudicated in 1976 how is that relevant to this uh, legacy over the struggle of water for Native American nations? So that's a good question. And that's, there's, there's a sort of, I have a lawyerly answer for you. And so I apologize to, to you and to your listeners. Um, <laughs> but w the interesting thing about Capert is that Capert was actually a case, it was a reserved water rights case, right. but it was not an Indian reserved water rights case. It was about a, a, a United States, it's a, the desert pupfish, I think, in Death Valley. So it's a, it's a national park, I believe it is. And the question there was, you know, what sort of reserved water rights could the United States have mm. and for, for non-Indian enclaves? So there you go. Know, when you've got a national park, when you've got a forest service unit, when you've got a fish and wildlife service, uh, the courts have expanded this reserved water rights doctrine to apply to those as well that when Congress sets aside that land for a federal purpose, it also implicitly sets aside enough water to satisfy the minimum needs of that federal enclave. So Capert is significant, and a case that came out right around the same time called U.S. versus New Mexico mm -hmm. is significant because they introduced this notion of essentially minimal need. Primary purpose and minimal need are sort of the two magic words, magic phrases that came out of those cases, where 
even if Congress had multiple goals in, you know, creating a forest service unit, for example, the reserved water rights only extended to the primary purpose uh, mm. rather than any of the secondary purposes. And the amount of water set aside is only the minimum amount necessary to provide for that primary purpose. And so that is a more restrictive standard than what the court articulated in winters. And one of the things that has happened in the 40-odd years, 45 years now, since Capert in New Mexico, is that courts have taken different approaches mm -hmm. to figuring out whether some of those reserved water rights doctrine restrictions that Capert and the U.S. versus New Mexico first articulated apply in the Indian reserved water rights context. Uh, and courts, both federal and state courts, have landed in different places uh, on some of those things. There are some courts that basically say, well, you know, the primary purpose of an Indian reservation is to be a homeland for the tribe and its members in perpetuity, and that's a very broad purpose. And so that sort of helps elide this primary secondary, like is the primary purpose only for irrigation and our cultural, you know, in-stream flow needs secondary and you don't get water rights for them. Um, the, the Wyoming Supreme Court in the Bighorn adjudication uh, more or less took that position. Their courts since then have tended to take a more expansive view of at least the purpose question for, for Indian reservations, um, but there continues to be significant dispute and litigation in, in adjudications over how you quantify what it is that an Indian reservation is entitled to. And so Capert in New Mexico sort of muddied the waters there. Uh, on some of the things that the Supreme Court had originally said in 1908 and reiterated in 1964 in, in Arizona versus California. And with the New Mexico case, which I, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, one of the other uh, major implications, and I'm thinking of the Marshall Trilogy cases as part of the outcome of U.S. versus New Mexico in 1978, is that when it comes to secondary issues um, that you know fall outside the primary use uh, purpose of the reservation, if you were, that fairly recognized nations are at that point subject to state law. And so I think of, you know, the Marshall Trilogy cases and, and the phrasing of, um, you know, the of guardian to the ward and, and uh, the relegation of domestic dependent nations and therefore treaty nations are treated circumstantially, if you will, in the context of federal Indian law as um, equals to the state. And so how does that work into our conversation about water rights for all federally recognized Native American nations along the Colorado uh, River, both in the upper and lower basins? So the, the state law and the state jurisdiction questions are, 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 are complicated. I mean, they're, they're, they're always complicated. Whether you're talking about law enforcement, whether you're talking about gaming, whether you're talking about ICWA, whether you're talking about water. You know, I mean, you mentioned the Marshall trilogies, and really, you know, in a lot of ways, in 1832, you know, in, in, in those last two cases in, in Cherokee and in Worcester, Marshall basically said tribes are tribes and states are states and never the twain shall meet. And we've spent the better part of the last 190 years blurring the heck out of that line in ways that, that don't do favors for anybody. And so, you know, the, the jurisdictional questions are very complicated. As a general matter, though, what the, what the United States Supreme Court has clearly articulated most plainly in a, in a 1984 case that actually was largely 
not favorable to tribes, uh, known as, as San Carlos Apache. It was a couple of consolidated cases coming up out of state adjudications in Arizona and in Montana. The, but what, what the Supreme Court did say there, and I'll, I'll circle back to the state jurisdiction part of that in a second, uh, but what the Supreme Court did say there is that tribal rights are to be quantified pursuant to the federal law standards of the reserved water rights doctrine, mm -hmm. and that if states act in derogation of those overarching federal laws and legal principles, in the wording of, I think it was Justice Stevens, the Supreme Court will give it a careful and searching review. Whether in practice that's actually what we see is a whole other question, but there is, at least in terms of the legal framework, that backstop that even when you have to go into state court to adjudicate your water rights, there is still the federal law overlay that is supposed to be applied. And why you have to go into state court is the, 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 the harsher part of the San Carlos Apache case, which is that back in the early 1950s, Congress enacted something known as the McCarran Amendment uh, after Senator McCarran from Nevada. And the purpose of the McCarran Amendment was very specifically to waive the sovereign immunity of the United States. And sovereign immunity is the doctrine. It's obviously very important for tribes also as sovereign nations. Uh, it basically allows the sovereign not to get sued without its consent. And in the McCarran Amendment, uh, Congress waived the sovereign immunity of the United States for the adjudication of water right claims in state court. And so that means federal water rights can get adjudicated in state court as long as you have a, a sufficiently comprehensive adjudication. And there's a whole rabbit hole that I'm not going to take you down about what is or is not comprehensive. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Jay Weiner, who is the tribal water attorney for the Quetzal Indian Nation, which is located along both sides of the Colorado River near Yuma, Arizona. We're speaking on the future of the Colorado River and what it means for Native American nations and more. And now back to the interview. But the, the gist of it is that Congress expressly waived the sovereign immunity of the United States for the adjudication of federal water rights in state court adjudications. What the McCarran Amendment does not specifically speak to, and part of this, frankly, was that because in 1952, the settler colonial society was largely continuing to ignore Indian water rights, and so it was not front and center on their radar was what that might mean for tribal water rights, because ostensibly the United States owns those rights in trust for the tribes, the water rights are trust assets. And so if the United States owns the bare legal title of the water rights, those are arguably United States water rights, and Congress just went and waived the United States sovereign immunity for the adjudication of, of federal water rights in state court. So McCarran is 52, by San Carlos is 1984, the question wasn't resolved between those two. We get to the 1970s, there is a lot more action going on in, in state and federal adjudications, particularly coming out of the, you know, the civil rights era and the Indian civil rights era and the revivification of tribal sovereignty. Um, tribes were becoming much more aggressive in trying to advance and protect their water right claims. And so there's a lot of action going on through the 1970s in that space that hadn't been going on previously for a bunch of years. And that's what led to this San Carlos case where the question was, does the McCarran Amendment extend to 
tribal water rights held in trust by the United States? And the Supreme Court said yes. What the Supreme Court did not say is that it doesn't waive tribal sovereign immunity. So in theory, a tribe could stand on the sidelines. But in practice, if you know the United States has to go file these claims and a tribe does not participate in the state court adjudication, then one of two things happens. Either the tribe is wholly at the mercy of the claims the United States chooses to file, or if the United States doesn't file claims or doesn't file all of the claims that a tribe might want to, to bring, um, they are arguably at risk of having those claims forfeited by virtue of not having been presented to the adjudication court. Mm. And so even though the Supreme Court in San Carlos walked this line between the waiver of federal sovereign immunity for water rights that the United States owns and not waiving tribal sovereign immunity as a practical matter, if you're if there's an adjudication going on in a in a water basin that you as an Indian tribe you know, have an interest and in, have claims in, you are probably going to need to participate, even if that is happening in state court, even though historically and, and in some cases into the present, state courts are very hostile forms. And, you know, we see what the Supreme Court just did in the Navajo case. I think that there are, you know, a range of opinions about just how reassuring the backstop that Justice Stevens held out in San Carlos was about the Supreme Court sitting there at the end of the day to theoretically be able to correct state errors when it comes to the adjudication of Indian water rights. And that's not a particularly comfortable position to be in, which is why for the better part of the last 30 years or so, mm-hmm. most of the action on resolving Indian water rights claims has been done through settlement rather than simply through full-on litigation. Um, because in litigation, it's, it's expensive. You've got to get experts. You've got to pay lawyers like me. Um, it can be very costly. It does not go quickly. Um, I mean, the, the Bighorn adjudication in Wyoming took about mm-hmm. 40 years. The Acavella, the Yakima Basin adjudication in Washington took about 40 years. Um, you, you know, the Gila adjudication in Arizona is still going on. These are not you know, the Klamath adjudication in Oregon, you know, it's, it's in, 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 you know into its fourth decade. Um, adjudications don't move quickly. And you are at the end of the day putting yourself and your water rights and the future water security of your tribe at the mercy of a judge, uh, and particularly at the mercy of a state court judge and oftentimes at the mercy of an elected state court judge. And that is a significant incentive towards settlement where maybe in a settlement you are not able to get the same level, the same size, the same geographic reach of water rights that maybe you could if you prevailed at the end of an adjudication, but you have certainty and predictability and greater control over what that outcome is rather than the the role of the dice that litigation can often be. Um, and you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Jay Weiner, who is the tribal water attorney for the Quetzal Indian Nation located on both sides of the Colorado River near Yuma, Arizona. We're speaking on the recently released draft supplemental environmental impact statement and what it means for the 30 federally recognized Native American nations that are related to the living Colorado River. We're going to take a short break and we'll come back with the second part of our interview. Yeah. 
In the Blood by Robbie Robertson here on American Indian Airwaves. In the second half of our show, we go back to the second part of our interview with Jay Weiner, who is the tribal water attorney for the Katsuan Indian Nation, located along both sides of the Colorado River near Yuma, Arizona. We're speaking on treaty and water rights as it relates to the future of the living Colorado River and the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation's draft supplemental environmental impact statement released in late October of 2023. And now back to the interview. Is one of the contributory factors in this um pattern, if you will, of water agreement settlements. Um, you know, and we've been talking about water rights, but there's also different kinds of water rights. I'm thinking of riparian rights, right? Appropriative rights, prescriptive rights, groundwater rights. So, you know, when we talk about water, you know, it's more, you know, in a way it's com- water gets compartmentalized like in Western settler colonial systems, right? Of categorizing things and, you know, creating subcategories and whatnot. But when we talk about water rights and we talk about, as you just mentioned, this kind of emerging pattern of settlements, how does that factor into or how does it relate to this recent U.S. Bureau of Reclamation's draft supplemental environmental impact statement? I mean, how, how does that relate and what does that mean for uh, Native nations? Great set of questions. Um, let me take your first, the first part just quickly, um, which is that a bunch of the other water law concepts that you referenced um, are in part what makes California such a challenge, mm-hmm. right? Because California, most of the rest of the Western states, by and large, are, are pure prior appropriation states. They have differences, for example, about when it was that you could just get a water right by like literally tacking up a notice, when you had to go to court, when you had to go to a state regulatory agency to get a permit. But they all generally fit this prior appropriation template. California, as, as you, you know, of the various sort of the other riparian rights, the corridor of like the different sort of water right theories that you mentioned, California has pieces of all of them. Um, which in part is why it's really, you know, California does not have a whole lot of, of Indian water rights settlements in it, in part because their water law system is is sort of this odd patchwork quilt. And so there's a whole other conversation to be had. Now, it's another rabbit hole I will not take you down um, about sort of the unique challenges that California's water law system, as well as California's unique history with Indian people and the current or political arrangements between Indian tribes in California um, make some of these things unique and uniquely challenging in California. But to bring it back to the question about the supplemental environmental impact statement, so it's, it's one of those places where because reclamation essentially is the watermaster in the lower Colorado, um, the, the 1928 Boulder Canyon Project Act that Congress enacted, um, basically just put reclamation in charge of distributing water in from the Colorado River in Nevada, Arizona, and California to people who had rights to it. Um, for everyone other than tribes, one of the things that that act, as I understand it, required is if you want to get water, you've got to have a contract with reclamation. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of, a lot of the, the water delivery 
issues that exist in the lower basin, so in Arizona, Nevada, and California, um, leaving aside tribes and, and a few other kind of cat and dog water uses that are out there, there are water right issues, but there are also contractual overlays. Mm. And so part of what reclamation is, is was leaning into in doing this supplemental environmental impact statement and in wanting water users in the lower basin especially to try to come up with their own plan to reduce cumulative uses mm. is that the backstop is essentially reclamation says well if you don't we're going to use our authority mm. um, our congressionally granted authority and our contractual authorities that many of these contracts contain shortage provisions and allow reclamation to reduce diversion to reduce deliveries in times of shortage and so that's a tool that reclamation has historically never used um, and historically has not had to use. And that was one of the things that they were beginning to make noises about threatening a year ago when we were looking at a potentially near-term catastrophe. And so where tribes fit into that is that tribes don't need to be contractors with reclamation. They've got entitlements, decreed water rights, settled water rights, what have you. And one of the places that had we not gotten the winter we did and had reclamation not withdrawn its original draft supplemental environmental impact statement last May, revamped it over the summer and re-released it in a different form with different proposed alternatives in October, mm. they were setting up some very real and significant fights between tribes like the Katsan tribe who I represent and reclamation over what exactly their authority is to impose out of priority cuts on tribal water rights because we would take the position that they do not have the authority to do that and one of the options that they included in the prior supplemental environmental impact statement proposed to do exactly that um, that we found both inappropriate and threatening um, we are pleased that the lower basin states in a process that, that the Katsan tribe participated in, and the Katsan tribe is actually contributing water as part of that plan uh, to shore up elevations in Lake Mead. And so the tribe is, is encouraged that reclamation has recognized those efforts uh, in the lower basin and has pivoted to what is now in the, the revised draft SEIS for its, its decision matrix. Um, but there are also tribes who are, who are differently situated. There are tribes in central Arizona, for example, um, who have settlements that rely to a large extent on water delivered by the central Arizona project. Mm. And as a consequence of the 19, the 1968 act that Congress authorized the construction of the central Arizona project, which is a, a massive infrastructure project that literally build the canal to move water 336 miles across Arizona from the Colorado River to central Arizona to provide water to cities like Phoenix and Tucson. Mm. As part of that, um, Arizona agreed and Congress incorporated the fact that the central Arizona project water use would be junior in priority. We're back to the priority system again, to other water uses in the lower basin. And so if reclamation is going to make cuts 
only in priority to address shortage. You're looking at a situation where, where CAP takes a, a massive potential hit with implications very directly for tribes who rely on CAP water for their settlements. And so there are, there are tensions in where this goes that, pit, that potentially can pit tribes against each other. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Jay Weiner, who is the tribal water attorney for the Quetzal Indian Nation, which is located along both sides of the Colorado River near Yuma, Arizona. We're speaking on the future of the Colorado River and what it means for Native American nations and more. And now back to the interview. You know, I know we, we at Kitsan, for example, uh, and I know we're not the only ones on the river, you know, would would resist strongly out-of-priority cuts being imposed on us. But without out-of-priority cuts being made in some fashion, there are tribes in central Arizona who will not have the water security that they bargained for in, in their settlements. And so one of the challenges that the basin faces as we move toward from this, this SEIS process, and it's, an, it's a supplemental environmental impact statement right. because it builds on a set of rules that Reclamation adopted in 2007, and it's those rules known as the interim guidelines that expire in 2026 and need to get replaced. How it is we are going to bring the basin to a sustainable place, like we were talking about earlier, um, in a way that does not harm tribes and does not compound the injustices that tribes have already suffered is 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 something that is a lot of time and attention needs to be paid to and is likely to be a very complicated and potentially controversial part of the basin efforts to get to a sustainable post-2026 framework. Um, I will say that we are we are encouraged that in the the scoping notice that reclamation published in the federal register to initiate this post 2026 planning process they specifically identified as part of the purpose and the need for this entire post 2026 planning exercise among other things uh, the protection of tribal water rights and the need to ensure that tribes are and remain able to benefit from those water rights. And so that was a very tangible demonstration of good faith from the Biden administration in putting that on the table up front as something that specifically needs to be built in to a post-2026 framework. That is a new and very positive development in the base. I was curious, um, uh, and thank you for that answer, and, and um, I appreciate uh, the thoroughness and and explaining to our listeners how complex it is because as it always is when we talk about uh, Native nations and relationship to the state and and federal agencies and federal Indian law. I know um, or earlier this year the U.S. Supreme Court handed down the Sackett versus EPA decision and I I bring that up because it you know, it changes the definition of protected waters in the United States. And and I know when it comes to, particularly when it comes to wetlands, and while in California, maybe along 92% of California's coastal wetlands have been destroyed, there are wetlands along the Colorado River that certainly are part of Native Nations traditional uh, and treaty homeland. So I was curious, does that decision in any way 
influence negatively or adversely this this process and and what's been stated in this draft supplemental environmental impact statement? So Sackett does not directly change anything on the Colorado River itself because okay. there is no dispute okay. that the Colorado is a water of the United States. Gotcha. Under under any definition, it is still something that remains under federal jurisdiction for Clean Water Act purposes. So there, but I mean, you're absolutely right that Sackett has the potential um, to to change a whole lot of water protections for ephemeral water sources that are part of traditional tribal cultural areas and, and the tribes rely on. And so it's certainly something that bears a lot of attention as to how the individual states fill some of the, the regulatory gaps that, that Sackett has blown in, in the Clean Water Act. Um, but for purposes of the Colorado specifically, it, the Clean Water Act piece of it is less likely to be relevant or than really the focus on some of the, the ecosystem restoration efforts that both tribes and non-governmental organizations and, and states to varying degrees are engaged in, as well as the binational relationship between the United States and Mexico. Mm, um, right. that, that, you know, there is, there is an, an increased focus in the basin on ecosystem health. There are endangered species in the basin, in the lower basin. There is a multi-species conservation program. Um, and so there are, there are certainly other legal frameworks, other tools, other political initiatives, and other practical on-the-ground work that is involved in the efforts to restore and repair the ecosystems of the Colorado River. Uh, and that is certainly something that is very important, I know, to the Katsan tribe, who I represent. Uh, and I certainly heard other tribes in the basin talk about that as well. And I mentioned this once before, but really this, this need for a living river is, is really part of what implicates that and part of what motivates, you know, certainly our focus on that. Uh, and I know that we are not alone in the basin and wanting to make sure that that ecosystem protection and restoration remains an important component as we move forward, that it is an important component of sustainability, which is what we believe we need to find a pathway toward if we're going to have a viable and a durable post-2026 framework for the basin. You mentioned living river, and I, I also think of a growing living river because just over the course of history, so much uh, has changed. And with those changes in the United States has been greater demands for water, whether it just be more people living, you know, in the Southwest and states like Arizona, the increase of industrial, you know, agriculture to other industries that rely on, um, you know, water to the beverage industries and bottle watering companies that rely on, you know, tapping groundwater for operations. So the demands have just, um, you know, exponentially exploded. So I just uh, thinking of those, some of those uh, factors, right, when you're talking about uh, a living river, but just more than living, but actually growing. Yeah, and so that's that's a really important point, and 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 there are obviously as there are with so many of these things multiple aspects to it. I think one thing that I would I would I actually find some hope in mm -hmm. is that you look at at Las Vegas, which consumes most of of Nevada's Colorado River entitlement, and I don't know exactly what the population figures are, but I know they've at least doubled. 
since the 1980s. And Nevada, not just on a per capita basis, but on an actual per acre foot basis, uses less water now than it did then. Uh, The Southern Nevada Water Authority has been very proactive Mm. in water conservation, in getting the authority to no longer water non-functional turf, in using reclaimed water. Um, There there is certainly a, a structural imbalance in the basin right now between the amount of water on average that Mother Nature provides and the amount of water on average that users in the basin take out. And that is something that, it, that needs to be fixed. Um, but there are, I think, multiple tools that can be deployed in fixing it. Some of it is simply cuts and reductions in water use, improvements in efficiency. Um, I think there is, there is room to look at how water is being used in the basin. Um, certainly, you know, the Kitsan tribe, we are just in the Yuma area, we rely very heavily on the agricultural economy around us. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is very important to the Kitsan tribe. Um, but agriculture in the basin as a whole uses probably 80 to 90 percent of the water overall. And, you know, there is room for improvement in agricultural efficiencies. I think mm-hmm. that there are probably hard conversations that need to happen. I don't know that they will happen or come to resolution in time to fully integrate into a, a framework ready to go in 2026. But I think that there are conversations that need to happen, particularly in light of climate change and in light of other growing demands, as, as you referenced, about what sort of agriculture the Colorado River Basin can sustain, where that agriculture should be occurring. There are certainly hydrologic challenges, and potentially, if, if some of the climate change projections are, you know, are borne out, um, some really significant hydrologic challenges that are facing us. The basin, the Colorado River Compact was built on an assumption of 16.5 million acre feet a year as a minimum coming into that system from rain and snow. We've been down between, you know, 12, 13, 14 million acre feet um, for the better part of the last 20 years, and that has been increasing the pressure on the system. Um, but I do, I do take some hope in the fact that just because something has been done a certain way for 100 years does not mean that it needs to be done that same way for the next 100 years. And I think that that is really one of the places that that tribes and Indian people who have lived in this basin since time immemorial, who have lived through different climate cycles in this basin, obviously nothing at the the speed and the scale and the intensity with which anthropogenic climate change is happening now, but who have survived and thrived in this basin for hundreds and thousands of years. I think that there are, are, are attitudes and approaches to water use in the Colorado River Basin that will allow us to achieve sustainability in a way that supports the people who want to live in the Southwest, the people who rely on it, the industries and economies, and the ecosystem and the culture and the tribes. I think that there is genuinely room for this to happen if people can approach this in in good faith, with open minds, and with creativity. Business as usual is not going to cut it, and that is a hard thing for a lot of people to face. And I think one of the things that we are going to, to learn in the next few years is whether this basin and whether this country has the capacity from a governance standpoint to do hard things.
because that's what it's going to take. But I think that there is a path forward for this basis. The moment of silence is over. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guests for the hour, Jay Weiner, who is the Tribal Water Attorney for the Quetzal Indian Nation. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Robbie Robertson, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Wearing their souls on the thread. The moment of silence is over. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. Blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains